Well, our readings this morning guide us uh, in a certain direction, and um, I think one of the directions that they lead us in is to stop and think this morning for a minute about what is the context, what is the nature of reality in which Christian spirituality happens. And what I think our readings show us this morning is that Christian spirituality happens within what's known as an open universe. Now, I don't mean physics here, and I'm not talking quantum physics and all the, the theories of how the universe came to be and, and will it end or how it will end. I mean an open universe in a more theological sense, which is to say uh, we don't think that we're all here just because of some big bang, and neither do we think we're here but God created us, and then he sort of went off and did his own thing. That, that would be a classic sort of deist position. But for Christians, we believe that we're pursuing our spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness in a conversational relationship with God that has intelligence to it and a reality to it. And so uh, we're not going to get very far, in my judgment, in Christian spirituality without understanding that this actually does happen within what we might think of as an open universe. Now, uh, scientists, as I said, debated this kind of forever, and I think we got a bad battery again, don't we? Um, I could go here. I'll just go here. I heard this story that a, a few scientists, uh, when they were doing the Human Genome Project, they got a little full of themselves one night after, you know, sort of cracking the, finally cracking the code of the DNA. They all went out afterwards to have a beer, and getting, you know, a little full of themselves, said to one of them, you know, if we can make people, who needs God? Like, you know, that's always been sort of God's gig, making human beings. And if we can make human beings, who needs God? So they said to one of the scientists, you know, you should just go tell God that we don't really need him anymore. So this scientist goes up to God and says, you know what, God, I really, we don't need you anymore. We have figured out how to make people. And so we're sort of on our own here. And God listens patiently to this scientist, and so finally he says to the scientist, hey, I know what we'll do. Let's have a man-making contest. And the scientist says, I'm telling you, God, we're down for it. We can handle this. And the scientist leans down to get a handful of dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. (laughs) So uh, just because we understand that uh, we live and some sort of an open universe doesn't mean we, we actually get this right. So here's what I mean by this. Christian spirituality happens within a story. It does not arise out of the blue. Um, God's up to something. He's doing something. He's shaping a people. And so, you know, in the text in Isaiah, we see how God's shaping, you know, the Jewish people and how he's teaching them that he is with them and that he can provide for them and that he will provide for them and that, in fact, he's given his word on it and that he supplies what it is that we need, but that he does it in sort of an intelligent conversational way. Meaning what's in view here is precisely not some sort of mysticism that's not available to us common people. But it's also important that when you think of, yes, God supplies what we need, he does it in this sort of ongoing relationship that you saw in the the reading from Isaiah, or that you see how the writer of Hebrews says, God even supplies our biggest need, our need for salvation and uh, transformation and, you know, the story of the widow's might. But as soon as we say this, we have to then recognize that it doesn't always happen the way we think it should. That 
understanding that we live in an open universe in which a conversational relationship with God is available to us, as soon as we say that, we can't take the next step that turns God into some sort of cosmic bellhop. That says, oh, now that we have this sort of conversation with you, you know, we can get it all figured out. And it's funny, when I was thinking about it, it's not funny, it's ironic how things can stick in your mind, because this is literally a 30-year-old story, but I can sort of feel it <clears throat> as if it happened yesterday. The, the person, uh, well, I probably shouldn't give too many details, but a very, very old, old friend, a very important old friend in my life, um, when he got married, he, his wife knew that he had had problems before with women. But, you know, he'd become a Christian, they thought they had it conquered, and they got married. But you know how women just have these amazing intuitions. And she just kind of knew that she wasn't safe. She was the most sincere, thoughtful, loving, kind, did everything she knew to be an absolute wonderful wife to whom somebody would never want to be unfaithful to. And her husband ended up being repeatedly unfaithful and in horrible ways and that's just one of the times in my life where you think god why did you not answer her prayers i don't get this maybe you've had suffering in your family maybe you've had someone die maybe you can't understand why you can't find a job right now what i'm saying is whatever you're going through now happens in an open universe and in a conversational relationship with an intelligent god who deals with you intelligently but that reality doesn't banish pain, it doesn't banish confusion, it doesn't banish hardship, it doesn't banish suffering. It just means whatever it is that we're going through, we're not going through it alone. That's the point of the story of Elijah and this widow. You're not going through it alone, and even when it looks like things can't happen, God says, well, I can make it happen. The classic story, of course, in all the Bible of this you know, business of God providing in ways that we don't think he would or we can't see how it would happen. The classic story, of course, is the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Remember that? Isaac, or Abraham, in all of his confusion, goes to offer his son. You know, he finds this lamb and, you know, that, that whole story and replaces his son with the lamb. And in that moment, he, in Hebrew, he calls God Jehovah-Jireh. Which means, you know, most of us would say, oh, God provides. It does mean that. But actually, the first sort of Hebrew notion, uh, it's sort of come down into English for us. It's just simply God provides. But the first real Hebrew notion was God sees. This is an open universe. We are not left to ourselves. God's provision comes first out of his seeing, his knowing, his own previous engagement with human beings and that he's up to something and that he's shaping a people and has been doing so for a long time. So the Lord has seen, gives us this sense of sort of interactivity that's happening in and with God and in and with his people. I always think of it sometimes humorously this way. Remember Adam and Eve's sin in the garden? And, and the first words you hear from God is, Adam, what? Where are you? What do you think God asked that for information? You think he suddenly lost his omniscience? Like, dang it, where is Adam? I know I had him somewhere. You know, like, honey, where's my keys? I mean, do you think it was one of those moments where God's like, dang it. I know Adam was here somewhere. 
I mean, think about it. God is not asking Adam, where are you, for information. It's Adam, where are you, for the sake of interactivity. It's more like, Adam, can you see where you are? And can you see what you've done here as you've cut yourself off from me and are hiding from me? It's, it's not God wondering. This is the beginning of an ongoing conversational relationship with God that God has expected for all of his people. The first humans, Israel, and the church. In, in every aspect of human history, what God has intended and, and given is himself in an interactive ongoing, conversational, I see and I will provide kind of way. And this, of course, is what the story in Kings this morning with the widow of Zarephath is teaching us. That, yeah, I mean, she, she was right. I can't go make you a biscuit. And if I do, actually, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna, me and my son are going to go eat the little we have, and then we're just going to lay down and die because we don't have anything. And, and, of course, the prophet says, no, that's not what's going to happen. God is knowledgeable. One of my favorite sayings from a friend of mine is this. He who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart is not likely to follow him. Did you catch that? He who has to actually hesitate before saying Jesus is intelligent is not likely to ever actually follow him. So this this open universe, this ongoing conversational relationship thing is not some wooey-wooey, out there, mystical kind of thing. It has a concreteness to it. And who of you would follow somebody who you didn't ascribe intelligence to? I mean, does Jesus know what he's talking about when he says things like, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, or it's better to turn the other cheek? It's better for humanity if you'll serve. And was, was he right about the golden rule, or is that just some interesting Christian idea? you know, in the terms of a world religion. Is the golden rule, do unto others you've had done unto you, is that just some sort of interesting philosophical tidbit that's been handed down to us through 2,000 years of Christian history? Or did Jesus know exactly what he was talking about? That what my father's up to in humanity, from the first humans to Israel to the church, what God is up to in humanity will go better if you'll actually do this. I, for one, think Jesus actually knew what he was talking about. And that he has the best information possible on the most important aspects of human life. That he knows how sexual ethics ought to work. He's not a a cosmic killjoy. That you can't just do whatever you want with your body parts. He actually knows that humankind works better in a certain sexual ethic. He knows that humankind works better in a certain economic ethic. He knows that humankind works better with certain relational ethics and family relationships. And so we actually won't follow him, I don't think, unless we, unless we ascribe to him within this open conversation relationship, genuine intelligence. Now, the, the passage in Hebrews, of course, just shows us that uh, in the most important aspects of humankind, even, God provides. And this would be a whole other sermon Someday we will talk about what salvation actually is and its sort of whole life dynamic, that it's, it's not simply forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is, a, um, is like a giant icon that stands for lots of other stuff that falls out of this concept of forgiveness of sins. Because it means things like being rescued, uh, being put back into the story of God, 
Um, as I've said before, it includes going to heaven when you die, but salvation cannot be reduced to it. Because again, as soon as in your mind you reduce salvation to going to heaven when you die, that is a recipe for actually not following Jesus. That's a recipe for something that happens in death, but we need a gospel that has to do with what happens in this life. And of course, the rest of salvation sort of unpacks that. You know, being rescued, being delivered from places where we're stuck, being regenerated, being given a new kind, a different kind of life. Um, Eternal life in the Bible is not out there somewhere in time after you die. It's not out there in space somewhere, wherever God might be. As I've said before, it's a different kind of life. And it starts now. And, and the testimony of the Bible is, is that God even gives us that. But now I want to turn just for our last couple moments to this widow and the story of the widow's might, which we've all heard many times. Um, and especially if it's in a series on tithing. Or we're having a building fund, you know. Then everybody breaks out, you know, the parable of the widow's might. And, you know, and how giving, it's not how much, it's how much pain, you know. Are you giving till it hurts, you know, that kind of thing, right? You've all heard sermons like that, right? Actually, I think this story fits in a completely different place. I mean, of course, you can teach on it that way. <clears throat> but actually, this story fits in a completely different place. And it's kind of one of the last challenges of Jesus to the religious leaders of what we think of now as first century Palestine. And, and it's, it's just Jesus always teaching. It's never Jesus being mean. It's him teaching. He's saying, on the one hand, look at the scribes and their fancy flowing robes and their phylacteries and, you know, the things on their wrists and, and their assumption of being able to have the best places in society he said that's sort of one way of being religious. But he, this is a teaching moment where he then sits down, interestingly, in the court of the women. Two passages this morning about these widows who were outcasts in um, ancient history and ancient culture. So these two outcasts who end up being facilitating this open universe of God and this conversational relationship with God, they end up facilitating it. And then thirdly, Jesus is sitting in the court of the women because this widow could not have gone into the inner courts to have given her offering. She had to give it in one of the outer courts. Well, one of the outer courts around the temple of Herod was the, 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 uh, the court of the women. So Jesus is sitting there in the outer courts and he watches the people putting in their big sums of money and then he sees this little, this, I don't know if she's little, this widow put in this little amount of money that literally these two mites ended up to what we would think of as a penny. So this is a story of contrast. This is a story that ultimately has to do with selfishness and religion becoming a kind of thing that's for yourself and that's all about you versus this widow who gets what God's up to and gets that I can trust him. This is what's really going on here. I can trust God. I can trust that this is an open universe and that my pursuit of Christian spirituality is not fundamentally driven by something inside of me. My Christian spirituality is fundamentally driven by something that literally marks and makes and colors and gives nuance to the cosmos. God is at work. We're not deists. He's not some far off God. In fact, the Bible says in him you move and have your being. 
You got up this morning in God. You drove here in God. The God who created all of this, it's in him we move and have our being. This widow gets it. So much so that she's willing to give whatever she has in trusting that there was a widow in our history, she's thinking. These people knew these stories. She's thinking, I remember. What was that, what was that thing we used to read in the scroll in Sunday school? You know, Oh, yeah, that widow of Zarephath. And she gave the little bit she had, and her oil and her flour never ran dry. All Jesus is saying is, you see that widow, guys? This is a teaching moment to his disciples. This is what goes on here. He's simply saying, you see that widow, guys? She gets it. You see, that, see those scribes over there, these sort of spiritual attorneys, these ancient spiritual attorneys? He's saying they don't get it. And they've somehow created a religion that is for them and all about them and what they get out of it and them having the most privileged places in society and that sort of thing. And so Jesus says, look, if you want to really understand what it is that I'm doing and you want to actually be a part of it, then look at this lady. She's actually living in the story. She realizes that she possesses what she really needs to get by, which is faith. And, and there's a kind of altruism. Do you know what altruism is? Altruism is giving with no hope or expectation of ever getting anything back. It normally means giving in a way that's actually hidden to everybody else. So you give, no one else sees it. You don't want or expect anybody else to see it because you don't want or expect anything back. And that's what Jesus is lauding. That when he says this woman gets it, that's what he's saying. She gets it in terms of faith. She gets it in terms of how to be generous. And this scribe, he doesn't get it. This is not what my father's doing. So what do we learn here this morning? Uh, we will never get to our dream of being church for the sake of others without that kind of faith and without that kind of altruistic spirit. Because otherwise, if you don't live in an, if you don't believe that your Christian spirituality and your missional engagement with the world is happening in an open universe in which God is Jehovah Jireh, who both sees you and what's happening with you and provides, you will become just like that scribe. Who sort of demands out of their heart to be seen in public as cool? Somebody who's trying to secure themselves. Do I need to say that again? Who postures? Who preens? Somebody who is trying to secure themselves in some deep inner place. Who is free to give their last little bit of oil or flour or a widow's mite? Somebody who knows that my pursuit of God for the sake of others happens within an open universe in which God sees and God provides. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.